Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you. We can sing these songs and mean them. God, we just sang that song, we will glorify you as the King of Kings, and that's really our heart this morning, is to glorify you as the King of Kings. Father, as the kids go to their class, um, Lord, would you show your majesty to them in the stories, in the songs, in the activities, God, would you show them the reality of who you are, and that you'd move their hearts um, to worship you. God, we need that. There's so many noises in our day and in our world, and um, it's just a constant barrage of messages and noises. And God, this morning, in this moment, we still our hearts. We just quiet our hearts. Lord, shut out all of the noises and help us to hear the clear, distinct voice of your Spirit speaking to our hearts. Lord, as we open your word, open our hearts. In the words of that old Anglican prayer, what we know not teach us what we are not make us and what we have not give us. And so that's our prayer this morning, God, that you would do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we give you all of the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you're new here this morning, my name is Floyd, and I welcome you here. Thank you for coming. We're working our way through First Peter. Also, welcome the people who are joining us online this morning. Um, thank you for taking a few moments out of your day and joining us. We are nearly done with the book of First Peter. We've got today and then one more Sunday. I was going to have this be the last Sunday in First Peter, and then, like I am so prone to do, I found another message. So um, I think next Sunday is going to be our last one. I say, I think. Um, I'm pretty sure. And then we'll go into 2 Peter. We are in 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to pick up on the second half of verse 5 and hit verse 5, 6, and 7 this morning. I titled it the message, um, Dress for Success, because that's, what he, that's how he starts this text, is he speaks to how we're dressed. It's not a cultural thing to dress differently for different occasions. That's a human thing. If you would examine cultures, by and large, most cultures in most places dress differently for different things. If I were here in black pants and a black and white striped shirt, you would assume I was getting ready to referee a game somewhere. Or if I was in like brown pants and a brown shirt, you'd assume I might be delivering packages, especially if it said UPS on it. <laughs> I briefly considered showing up this morning in a suit and tie, but I didn't consider it very long. Because <laughs> I tend to not wear suits and ties except for funerals and weddings. But even that is a cultural thing. And it's not just an American culture thing, it's a human culture thing that we dress accordingly to what we want to communicate and what we hope to be the outcome. And so if we go to a job interview, we're going to dress accordingly. And if, we're, if we have an important meeting, we dress accordingly. We dress accordingly to what we are hoping for the outcome. And Peter is drawing on that 
cultural sort of intuition, it's often unspoken, and he sort of borrows from that thing within humanity, and he applies it to the condition of heart. Now, you may have grown up, as I did, in a context or a setting where an overabundance of attention was put on how you looked on the outside. And so you may be saying, man alive, don't even talk to me about dress or the way you look. Take a deep breath. Peter is not going there either. It's worse than that. (laughs) It's tougher than that. He's talking about what's going on in our heart. And he starts out in the second part of verse 5. Now, if you were here last week, you know that the text last week, and Billy did a wonderful job with it, addresses elders and how they should serve as servants and elders in a church. And he sort of ends that, if I had been separating the verses, if I had been the guy that was doing that, I would have made a distinction. I would have put the second half of verse 5 with the verse 6, but I wasn't the guy that did that. I get to be the guy who messes with it on a Sunday morning. So you may disagree, that's fine, you're allowed to be wrong, Um, but verse 5 says, likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. So there is sort of this build up to what he's going to say next, and then we're going to pick it up in the second half of verse 5. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to read along. I've got it up on the screen also. Clothe yourselves. See, this is why I was talking about clothing. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And that's as far as we're going to go this morning. So Peter's writing to these dear readers, and as you know if you've been with us as we've kind of been going through the book, that they were going through a difficult time, but they were also on the brink of a more difficult time. That things were going to get much worse. And if you know history, you know that things did, in fact, get much worse after Peter wrote this first epistle to to the churches. And they were about to go through some really hard stuff. Persecution that we don't know anything about. Suffering that we have a hard time putting our mind around. And so... As Peter is writing this epistle, that theme keeps coming up, that in light of difficult times coming ahead, that they would anchor themselves in the hope of Christ. And so that theme is, is coming back and again and again, that these people would find their anchor in the hope of the gospel, that they would humble themselves. And there's some really practical stuff in here. But it's also in the context of how to live through some difficult things. And as we've talked about it several times throughout this book, we don't know what the future holds. None of us do. It actually doesn't really matter that much whether things get more difficult or less difficult. What matters is where our hope is grounded. What matters is what it is that we are living for. 
I've often said of those periods of time when the church undergoes intense physical persecution, sometimes even to the point of people losing their lives, you often find a church that is growing in that context. The Reformation is one of those times where when there was people who were being persecuted, who were being burned alive in some cases, you found the church of Jesus Christ not diminishing but growing in that sense. And it, and it seems counterintuitive in many ways. But I've often thought, I think that the only way I know to explain it, you've heard me say this before, is that if it's worth dying for, it must be worth living for. And people sort of know that. And so the, the message over and again is, where are, where's our hope anchored? If our hope's anchored in our bank account, we're in trouble. If our hope is anchored in a good government, we're in trouble. If our hope is anchored in people liking us, we're probably going to be in trouble. Where's your hope anchored? But in that context, he gives a teaching on the elders, and then he says, he comes to this passage, and there's like this little part of me that wants to kind of go flying past it and jump to the next one, because it confronts all of us. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. Point number one, and I'm going to kind of start with this idea of choosing humility. One of the things that I have stopped doing a number of years ago, and you've heard me say this, I've stopped praying, God help me to stay humble. Because I don't assume I am right now. And I've also come to realize that humility is a series of choices. It's less about having reached a point where I am now humble and it's more about a series of daily choices. It's choosing in the different circumstances of life to choose humility. And he addresses some choice of humility and then the response to the choice to, hum to be humble. In verse 5, he talks about humility in our human relationships. He says, humble yourselves. I'm sorry, let me back up again. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And he says, toward one another. We're going to get to the part about humbling yourselves under the hand of God. But before we get there, humble yourselves toward one another. I want a little more clarity. Would it be okay if I would humble myself toward one another as long as people share my ideas? Would it be okay if I would humble myself toward people who are likable, who vote the way I vote, who see the world through the lens that I see the world through? Could I get a, a caveat with this directive to humble yourself toward one another that says, I get, the, I get to not humble myself if they're different than me. Or if they're a jerk. If I don't like them. Could I get a pass on this? And there's no pass in the text. Peter doesn't say, humble yourselves toward one another unless it gets difficult because that person's a difficult person, so therefore you don't have to humble yourself. He just says, do it. He says, humble yourselves toward one another. And then, 
he puts a so that with it, right? Because he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And he says, for. He says, this is why. And then he quotes out of Proverbs. There's a little bit of a difference in the wording, but the same idea. James also quotes out of the same place in in Proverbs. I think it's in chapter 3, where it talks about how God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That comes up a couple times in other places in Scripture. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now let's just slow down here just a little bit. Because this raises the question for all of us. Am I a proud person? Or am I a humble person? None of us in this room, I don't think, would say, when we got married, we were hoping for failure. When I started relating to that person, I was hoping to fail miserably as a friend. When I started that job, I was hoping I would just fail miserably. None of us starts with that premise, and yet that winds up being the story for so many of us. And we wonder where this grace is that the preacher talks about on Sunday, the the kindness of God, the favor of God, God doing in us what we can't do for ourselves, grace. And we wonder, where is this grace that we hear about on Sundays. Where is the grace to navigate things like disappointment in relationships, broken relationships, broken marriages, physical ailments? Where is this grace that we hear so much about? And then we come to the text like this and Peter says, well, God gives grace to the humble, and he opposes the proud. And it raises the question, could I possibly be a proud person? Well, of course not. You know, we dealt with pride when we were saved. Now it's done, right? Well, it's not for me. The answer to the question, could I possibly be a proud person, is absolutely you could be a proud person. This is not something that we deal with once and it goes away. This is a daily thing. And one of the cultural myths is that pride is a personality. Like that there's some personalities that are just proud. You know the personality. The loud type, the people who talk about themselves constantly, like, yeah, they're proud. That's not really the biblical definition. A biblical understanding of pride has more to do with a disbelief of what is true about what God says. Humility is essentially agreeing, about, agreeing with God on what he says about us, about himself, about the truth in general. You can be a very loud person and be very proud. I know some very talkative people who are actually very humble. You can be a very quiet person 
and be very proud. Because here's the thing. Let's say you tend to be one of those people, and I see one of these people and when I look in the mirror, who when, I, when we enter conversation have so much to say. Like, I'm that way sometimes. This will shock you. I just have so much to say. And then I can find myself at the end of the conversation realizing that I dominated a conversation and didn't learn anything about the other person in the process. Oh, they know everything I'm thinking. If their eyes didn't glaze over, which they probably did. That's pride. Like, it's not hard to identify. But what if I'm the person who never contributes because I'm fearful of rejection. Like I'm afraid that somebody is going to think I said something stupid. So I never offer myself in a conversation. I just stay very quiet and reserved for the sake of never looking dumb. Like it's just easier to build the walls. Don't let anybody in. Don't let anybody close. Don't share anything personal. Because it might not be well received. That's also pride. It just manifests itself in a different way. You can, be, you can be that person who is very involved in the work of a church. Like you're just there, you're active all the time. Prayer meeting, you're there. Sunday morning, you're there. And somebody may be looking at it and be like, wow, you're very religious and very proud. It's possible that that's true. You can also be the person who's like, mm, I just don't feel like it. Like I woke up this morning and picked up my phone and it was cold outside. There's no way I'm going out when it's cold. I'm not putting myself out there. I don't like to be around other people. Whatever the reason, both of them very proud. You get my point. It's not a personality, is it? It's a series of choices. You can be domineering or apathetic, both proud. Because apathy is driven by pride as much as being domineering is being driven by pride. And so if you're very introverted, you don't get a pass. You don't get to say, you know, I'm an introverted person, therefore I am humble. Like, I never talk over anyone. Well, the answer is not to start talking over people. Please don't. The answer is not to start domineering. In other words, the answer is not to start being like the other extreme. The answer is to live in grace. Because while he does certainly say, choose humility, clothe yourself with humility toward one another, that's a choice, right? He's also saying that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, if you are very hyper-convinced like if you're hyper five-point Calvinist, which most of you don't even know what that is necessarily, that's fine. And you're, right, you're like, I am so convinced of pre-election that 
there is no choices I actually make, that God makes all the choices for me. Obviously, there's varying degrees of that belief. Let's say you're hyper that way. And then you come to a text like this, and you're like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to actually choose humility. That seems counterintuitive. I thought God does all of it. I thought he does all the work. And I am just receiving what he is doing in me. Because I know I can't earn my salvation. Like, that's just bad theology. We know that, right? So as Peter's saying here, that you can somehow earn the grace of God by being a humble person. Like if I would try harder to be a humble person, would I then receive God's grace in greater measure? No and yes. Just to confuse you. This comes into the, the work of salvation as it has already been done, and it is continuing to be done, and it will be completed. So, Peter is writing to people who have already received God's grace because Christ humbled himself, went to the cross, lived as a man, suffered as a man, died as a man for you and I to forgive us of our sins and restore us to an almighty, holy God. He humbled himself in ways that you and I could not humble ourselves. You can't humble yourself enough to receive the grace of God, and neither can I. Only Jesus could humble himself enough to earn God's favor and his grace and his kindness and his divine nature in us through his spirit, by his grace. And so you and I come broken and sinful, and we receive grace because of the completed and finished work of Jesus Christ. Our salvation has been purchased, it has been earned, and so has, in that moment, all of the grace we need for the rest of our lives, to live our lives. It has already been bought, it's already been purchased. But listen, if there was a moment or a season of time when, when you change from a person who, know, who didn't believe to a person who does believe, a person who didn't have grace to a person who does have grace, you know that in the process of that happening, you needed to humble yourself and admit, I need it. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I need God's grace. And if that's the reality of this, the start of your walk with God, it's also the reality of your continuing walk with God. That you experience the grace of God that has already been purchased, by the way, through humility. You're not buying God's grace. That's my point. You're living in it. And every time you and I choose humility, it's an act of faith that results in more grace applied to our lives. We're not buying it. We're believing it. And believing it allows us to experience it. So, don't attach it to a personality. Don't assume that you get a pass. But neither can you assume that you have the ability to purchase God's grace. It's been purchased. When you and I choose humility, though, we choose that humble response. And believe me, like take any situation... 
Think about the last argument you were in with a person. Either on social media, face-to-face, or maybe even in your head. Those are the best arguments. (laughs) I've never lost one. Like every one of those arguments I have with my spouse or with somebody else, I'll, you know, I'm like, I'm like, and he's going to say this, and then I would say this, and then I'll say this, and he's going to say that, and he won't know what to say next because I win. <laughs> it's cool. And then, you know, what's the humble response? What's the humble response? Well, is the humble response always apathy and just being like, well, we're not going to have the conversation. I just won't, you know, I won't know. Not, sometimes the most humble response is to say, let's talk through this. Gritty? Yeah. I, you know, this is where we live, all of us. Is there a week that goes by that I don't run into this stuff? No. You and I need to ask ourselves, what's the humble response? Do you want to walk and live in the grace of God? Honestly, ask yourself, is your life marked by God's grace? Because that's the real question. It's hard to know whether you're a proud person or not. But most of us know if we're living with the smile of God in our lives. You can be going through immensely difficult things. But if you know God is near... And if you know he's close to you, it changes everything. Choose humility toward one another. Secondly, verse 6. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you. Surrender, choose humility and surrender to God so that you can receive God's reward. You remember when Jesus was here? There was times when he would point to these very proud religious people, the Pharisees, and he would say, see what they're doing? They're praying. They're tithing. They're teaching. They're showing up for worship. They're doing all the right things. And he says they do it to be seen of men. And then Jesus said something really interesting right after. He said, and they have their reward. He's like, that's as much as they get out of this. They get the approval of people. Pride was driving the best of actions. And because pride was in the driver's seat, these people that Jesus was pointing to We're receiving the praise of people, but not the reward of heaven. Not God's stamp of approval, but people's. Because there was such an arrogance in their relationship with God, Jesus saying, the reward ends. Now, clearly, what Christ is not saying is therefore, don't pray. Don't tithe, don't worship, don't teach. That would fly counter to everything else that Scripture teaches us. In fact, Jesus himself taught us clearly how to pray. So the same activity in our relationship with God can be driven by pride or humility. You can pray in pride, you can pray in humility. If you hang around me long enough, you know that prayer is a big deal to me. Like I am very passionate that Christians and the churches pray and that we pray together. 
Like, I, I know, I know, you know, I've heard it over and over and over. You know, well, I'm comfortable praying by myself, but I don't like to pray with other people. That's not unusual. In fact, it's pretty normal. And most of us kind of have to push through some of that discomfort and then experience the actual benefits of doing it. And the point with that is that you could show up here. I mean, we do a once a month prayer time, right? You could show up here so full of yourself that you're here. Because those of you who don't show up, I'll just clue you in. It's not as full as it is here this morning. Okay? In fact, it's not half as full as it is here this morning. So those who come are clearly better people. (laughs) Those who don't are just inferior. But if you are coming with that sense of pride, then what good is it? But if you're staying at home because of pride, then what good is it? And I'm not picking on just prayer. I'm like everything in our relationship and our walk with God, if you're reading your Bible in pride, or if you're not reading your Bible because you're just lazy and you don't feel like it, and it's easier to scroll Facebook than to read your Bible. Pride drives it, both. And so Peter doesn't give all of the caveats. He just says, God's mighty hand is stretched out, and he says, humble yourself under it. So not only are we dealing with, the, with our Christian lives, there's a greater dynamic happening here that's even more weighty than whether you show up for church or not. It is this idea of God's sovereignty over our lives. And we, if you think it's, it's, a, it's a struggle to pray, it's a greater struggle to accept the sovereign hand of God in our lives. The stuff that you and I couldn't choose, that God chose for us. The places that God took us to. The things he allowed into our lives. The difficulty, the diseases, the the struggling relationships, the things that God in his all-infinite, wise sovereignty allowed us to go through. And we are struggling with that. We're like, why? What is wrong with you, God? I would never choose this for myself. I don't like this. I don't like that. Maybe you don't like your parents. You don't like your siblings. You don't like your church or your community or you don't like your body or you don't like your personality, whatever it is. And you're like, I don't like the way God chose for me. This annoys me. And what is wrong with God that he would choose this? And Peter is saying, oh, whoa, whoa. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, under the sovereign hand of God. Would you be able to say right now in your life, God, I don't understand what all is going on in my life. I don't understand why you chose the things for me to go through that I'm going through right now. But right now, I choose to humble myself and to say, God, you are God. You're more wise than I am. You're more powerful than I am. And I submit to your sovereignty. And I trust you in all of the stories of my life. And he says, if you'll do that, you'll receive your reward. Lastly, Oh, this is why I put a slide up, because I wanted to go to this text. I knew I'd forget it if I didn't go to that text. 
Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. I just want to just quickly go here in this idea of humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It says in Isaiah chapter 66, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is a word to people who were used to a physical temple where the presence of God dwelt. The Shekinah glory dwelt there in that physical temple. And God is saying, do you think that you can contain me in a building? You can't contain me in a building. He says, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. He's my much bigger than they could imagine. He's more majestic than they could imagine. But you know what? He's also more personal than they could imagine. And he's like, do you think that you can build a house for me to dwell in that would contain the majesty of God? He says, certainly not. But he says, you want to know where I'll live? I'll live with humble people. You want to know where, where, where God commands his presence? With humble people. He was humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Thirdly, verse 7. He says, and this is actually the end of a sentence. There's only two sentences in our text this morning, by the way. So this is the end of a sentence, but it's continuing a thought. But it's worth calling attention to. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And the choice to be humble is also a choice to cease from worry. Humility towards one another is deeply important. Humbling ourselves under the mighty sovereign hand of God addresses the worries and the anxieties of our lives. And he just says, take all the things that you are carrying and again, sort of a word picture. Imagine you're holding all of your worries and your anxieties. If you're a parent, you know what it's like to feel anxious about your kids. But that's not the first time we felt anxious. We've felt anxiety since we were kids. Anxiety about how this is going to turn out, what is going to happen next, and then you turn into you know, a teenager and you start getting worried about who you're going to marry and what they're going to be like and whether you ever get married or not. And, you know, and then you get married and then you worry about whether you're going to be able to have kids and, and what kind of people they're going to be. Are you going to be a horrible parent? And then you, know, then you worry about what kind of a grandparent you're going to be. And you know, There's just always something to worry about. If you've run out of things to worry about, turn on the news. You'll have a whole fresh set of worries, I promise. There's just always something to be anxious about, isn't there? And we kind of walk around carrying these things. I remember a number of years ago reading you know, the humorist uh, writer, Pat McManus, he talked about all of us have like a worry box. And you can be carrying, you know, this worry box around. And, you, you know, you've got all these nice, tidy worries in there. You're worrying about things like, you know, world famine and, um, you know, and, and whether you have enough money in your bank account to take care of all the bills and stuff. And then you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, somebody, you realize the car in front of you is stopped, and you're not going to be able to stop in time. And he's like, 
this is my kind of illustration, but all of a sudden, all of the stuff in your worry box gets chucked out, and there's one worry that fills the whole box. I'm going to hit the car. But there's just always something to be anxious about, isn't there? And so Peter is saying, take the box, the worries, the big ones, the little ones, the daily ones, the, the jolt of fear, all of it. And he's like, throw it on God. He's like, cast it, all of your anxieties on him. Put the worries on his shoulder. And what that looks like is, Lord, I'm anxious about fill in the blank. But because you are, and acknowledge whatever attribute he has, if you're worried about your bank account, Lord, I'm anxious about whether we're going to have enough money, but your word says that you clothe the lilies and you feed the sparrows. So I believe you're going to care for us. So I give you that worry. Lord, I don't know if I can be a good parent, but your word teaches me how. And your word says that you, that you care about the children, so I believe you're going to take care of it for me. I'm, what I'm talking about is be very specific. Like if you go home and you just say, God, I give you all of my anxieties and worries, you're probably not actually going to feel much sense of having cast them. Name them. He can handle it. Name them all. He's fully capable of handling them. If you got 20, then name all 20. But bring them. Cast them. Why? He says, because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. That's amazing. The God of heaven, the one who's sits in heaven as his throne, earth as his footstool, is also saying, I care so much about you that I would take your anxieties and I will care for you. Like, well, what if? What if nothing changes? Like, what if I don't experience the healing? What if the marriage falls apart anyway? Well, do you want to do it alone or with him? Do you want him to carry the anxiety part of that or do you want to carry it? You want to experience the care and the grace of God. But in order to do that, in order to cast our our anxieties on him, there has to be a choice to humble ourselves and say, Lord, I can't carry this on my own. I can't do this on my own. Sermon in a sentence this morning. Humble response opens the door for God's grace to fill our lives. Before you go to bed tonight, I promise you will have the chance to respond with humility. Maybe before you get to the parking lot. There is opportunity after opportunity after opportunity in our lives to respond with humility. And it is the door, based on the truth of God's word, that opens for God's grace to fill our lives. Grace that has been purchased and bought. Grace that has been paid for at Calvary to flood our lives and to change our relationships with each other, with God, 
and change the way that we think about life in, its, in itself. So whatever is going on right now, maybe there is a relationship and you do need to say, I, I need to make a different choice. I need to respond differently. Like all that person has seen from me is pride. Maybe it's God's sovereignty. Like I need to wrestle through the things that God has allowed in my life and I need to submit myself to his sovereignty and say, Lord, you're on the throne, not me. You're wiser than I am. I trust you. And I'll take those worries and those anxieties and I'll cast them on you. I believe you care for me. Amber, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up, I want to bring it to a close. A few months ago, about a year ago, um, there, was, there was a podcast that became very popular in evangelical Christianity, and I know a number of you have been, have, were listening to it. It was called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and, um, and I was sort of fascinated by it because, um, because it, was, it was a story that I was sort of familiar with, and it was a story of a very large church um, that, had, that had risen very quickly, and, um, and then because of abuses of the pastor had, had fallen even quicker, and... Um, and, and the podcaster does, and some of you are very familiar with what I'm talking about, and others are like, I don't know, maybe I should go listen to it. I don't know. But, um, but the podcaster did, did a good job of asking the question, like, what caused the rise and fall of this church? And, and it's a bigger question because the question is, like, what happened in American Christianity that caused that scenario where um, things like bigger is better ruled the day? Um, celebrity pastor mentality, like like the guy who's preaching, um, you know, whatever he says, that's gospel. Like that's what we we go with, even when it doesn't line up with scripture, even when he's not modeling it. By the way, um, and and you know, the text ahead of this one just addresses that so well, asking leaders to also model. And I, I don't think. Any podcast that I've ever listened to has made me more introspective than that one did because every time I'd get done listening to an episode, I mean, my mind would just roll for hours and I would just keep asking the question, like, what is it that makes the difference? What allows a church or a congregation to continue faithfully year after year after year, generation after generation? Because that's what we all want, isn't it? Like, I don't want... I love what God is doing in this group of people right here. I love what he's doing in our community. This is like literally the most exciting time of my life. I love it. But how, how does that continue to the next generation, the next generation, the one following that? That the story lives beyond us, beyond the people that the story is not about, well, he did it, they did it, but it's that God did it. And the question that this podcaster asked has, has sort of sat in my heart, my mind, like who, who killed, he says, who killed Mars Hill, right? And his, his, kind of his answer is, we all did. Like we all bought into a mentality but you could also answer that question and just say, pride kills it. 
Pride will bring an end quicker to what God is doing than anything else. I'm just talking from my heart here for a moment. The only way that the story of what God does in our personal lives, in our church, in our community, that it continues and it transcends generations, is if we choose humility as we steward the move of God, as we steward God's work. The instant pride sets in, and we begin to become proud. And, and like I said, it either manifests itself in like a lot of noise or a lot of apathy. Both are proud. But when pride sets in, God promise, they never promises that he's putting his name on that. He never promises to continue any of that. Because it's not about a person's name, a church's name, a denomination. It's not about any of that. It's about God's name being glorified in the lives of his children. And it does not happen unless we choose humility. Unless we, you and I make personal choices to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. I want more than anything for the generation of kids that's upstairs right now to grow up with a deep, passionate walk with Jesus Christ that will lead another generation to know God and to experience his hand in their lives. If those kids are led by a generation of proud people, it will not happen. Choose humility so that God's grace can flow through our lives. Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible work of grace that was purchased on Calvary. Thank you, God, for for your care and your love in our lives. Thank you, God, that I have received your grace and continue to, and thank you for that for all of us. Lord, because of your grace, we do want to choose humility. We want to clothe ourselves with humility to experience more of your grace. Lord, do in us what we cannot do for ourselves because only you can do it. Thank you. In Jesus' name.